Good morning, everyone. I was going to make a snarky comment about everyone sitting far back, but I decided to refrain from that. Uh, We are going to be asking the question this morning, what is humility? And as we make our way into this discussion, I want to take you back to May 18th, 1860. Uh, That was the day that the Republican Party was going to announce their candidate for president. And there were, at the time, five uh, frontrunners. But we're going to just tell you about two of those frontrunners. The first is William Seward, who was, many thought, the most highly favored candidate. He lived in Auburn, New York, and if he went to his house that day, the atmosphere might best be described as electric. Because he was walking around with this awareness and this assumption that, that based on all major news reports, that he would be winning the campaign. And so he had confidence. In fact, he had already written the first draft of his speech that he was going to give to the Senate, announcing that he would no longer be serving there as he ran for president. But it wasn't just in Seward's house that there was this excitement. All throughout Auburn was excitement. About the middle of the day, they moved from the armory down to the middle of town. They moved the cannon. And that was the cannon that they were going to shoot to announce to all the good news that William Seward had, in fact, won the candidacy to run for the Republican Party for president. The restaurants in town had ordered extra food because they expected this swell of visitors coming. There were banners that were ready and and the the flags were all ready. The town was ready to celebrate his candidacy. And he was confident, himself prepared for it. But in another little town was a man who throughout that day was described as nervous and fidgety. In fact, those around him that day said that it was like he was struggling to keep up his hope. Uh, He had had two previous failed Senate bids, and it was seeming once again that he would be facing that certainty. But that man, Abraham Lincoln, on May 18, 1860, won the Republican candidacy for presidency. And do you know what happened from there? He ended up winning the presidency and becoming the president of the United States. And I want to look at these two figures and ask the question about humility. Because from the outside, it seems like it would be very easy to say that William Seward was clearly not a very humble person, and Abraham Lincoln was an extremely humble person. But as we look closely at humility, one of the things that I think I'm learning as I'm getting into this study is from humility from a distance, it seems really clear and really easy to talk about humility, but the closer at least that I get to humility, the more I think, hmm, I wonder, is that really humble, or is that something else going on there? See, if we're going to assess which of these two people really is humble, there's two important factors we have to look at. And the first is the objective reality. What what is the the truth in the matter of fact? What is actually happening in the real world? Some things are in fact the case and some things are not the case. And then we have to look at one's self-reflection, how they think about themselves. And then also we have to look at a person's response. What are they doing in response to that objective. Lincoln was nervous. Seward was confident. Does that mean Lincoln was more humble, or does that simply mean Lincoln knew the reality of the situation? The objective reality was they did not think he was going to win. Seward was confident. Why? Because they thought he was going to win. Is it inappropriate to be confident when it seems you should be, or is it better to be nervous when you think you should be confident? Here's a way We can think about this. Let's say the objective reality is that you are really strong. 
You are the defending weightlifting champion of the world. Can you be a humble person and say, I am strong? Or to be humble, do you have to say, well, I'm fairly strong. I'm a little strong. I'm somewhat strong. Or do you have to say, I'm not even strong at all? I mean, what does it mean for somebody who in the objective reality is something? What does it mean for them to function and act like a humble person? Maybe we can illustrate it by comparing and talking about this fictitious story. A 16-year-old girl shows up for her shift at McDonald's. And she says to her boss, hey boss, what would you like me to do for today? And her boss says, why don't you go ahead and start busting the tables, clearing the tables and washing tables. And so she walks by a family that's just finishing up their meal. And she says, can I clear your table for you? And they nod and say yes. And she clears the table and they say thank you. And that's the whole story. That's a pretty boring story, isn't it? It's a story about exactly what we expect and anticipate to happen. And there seems to be nothing dramatic because she did what her objective reality demanded of her. She was an employee who was supposed to clear tables who did what? She cleared the tables. But now fast forward that story 25 years. That very same girl is now the CEO of McDonald's. And she walks into a McDonald's and as she's walking past the table, she sees a family finishing up their meal. And she says, are are, are you done with your meal? And they say yes. And she clears up the table and throws it in the trash. Well, one of the other customers at the restaurant knew that she was the CEO and started recording as soon as that happened. So she recorded and then she put it on social media and everybody's blowing up as this goes viral about, wow, she is so humble. I I wish I could work for a CEO like that. Wouldn't the world be better if everyone else was just like that? And you see, the only difference between these two stories is that the objective reality of this girl changed over that time period. There's not very many stories that go viral about you doing the exact same thing you were asked to do. But there needs to be this recognition that we are willing to step down below what objectively we can be seen to be doing. Think about this in the context of Jesus in John 13. Uh, This is likely his fourth Passover meal now with the disciples. In John, it's the third meal there. And what does Jesus do in John 13? He washes the disciples' Now, my question is, what happened the first time and the second time and the third time they had the Passover? Who do you think washed the feet? It was the servant who was supposed to wash the feet. And how many texts are there written about this amazing servant whose job it was to wash the feet, wash the feet? There are none of those stories because the objective reality of what was asked of that person was exactly what they did. But Jesus, who we know to be the Son of God, Jesus, who we know to be the Messiah, he lowered himself and played a role that was far below his role. And so we find that humility comes not just in what a person does, but in what a person does in reference to a certain position. So I want us to begin to unpack some different understandings, concepts, definitions about humility. We're going to go through these. These are secular definitions to begin with. And then we're going to ask how many of these we think fit within the framework of Jesus and his ministry. So here's the first way to understand humility. Humility is underestimation. It means underestimating your worth, skills, achievements, status, or entitlements. So we'll illustrate it. A husband and a wife are fighting. And she says, honey, I really need you to play your role with the kids. I understand you're busy, but this is the second week in a row you forgot to pick the kids up from school. And her husband says, you're right. I'm awful. I've always been awful. My parents were awful. 
And I wish I could tell you the future might be different, but it won't be because I'm just plain awful. If you think that's humble, then you believe humility is underestimation, putting yourself down. The second definition or or, or category here is non-overestimation. Resisting the temptation to overestimate your worth or your skills or your achievement or your status. So Steve works for a company that's a highly competitive company. And what they expect is self-promotion. And so they have quarterly meetings with their managers where they are to talk about the things that they have done and accomplished in that quarter. And so Steve in that meeting says, I I came up with the initiative that has now led to an additional $500,000 in sales for this company. And the question is, can you say that and be humble? In the idea or the understanding of non-overestimation, you can do that as long as what you're saying is in fact true. Or if anything, it's not going over the reality. Imagine it really led to $750,000 in sales, but Steve is being really humble. He says, well, it led to $500,000. That leads to a third category that's very similar, which is called on-target estimation. Humility is refraining from arrogant or boastful behavior, acting as if you're more superior to what you really are. And if this is how you understand humility, then you say, hey, Steve, if if you led to $750,000 extra profit for the company, just say it. You don't even need to underestimate that number. Just simply be on target, and that's a humble thing to do. Then there is limitations owning. Humility is the disposition to be attentive to and to care about and respond appropriately to one's limitations. The way we'd illustrate this is that Sally is uh, high is applying for a job for president of a nonprofit. And they say, Sally, what are some of your skills? What are some of the things that you're good at? And Sally says, well, I'm really good at bringing people together. I'm really good at communication. I'm really good at leadership. And then they say, Sally, what are some things you're not very good at? And she said, well, I previously worked in a sales department. I was the worst performing salesperson in that entire department. If you understand humility as limitations owning, you're saying to be humble means simply you take ownership for the things you're good at, but you also have to be willing to take ownership for what? For the things that you're not very good at. And as long as you're doing that, then you're humble. Then there is the definition of low concern. Humility is the disposition to have a usually low concern for one's own worth, skills, achievement, and status. Uh, As I think about this, this is a true story from uh, General Israel Putman Uh, who in 1776, he was riding around on horseback and the soldiers were building a wall of defense. And he saw someone, he said, he said, hey, would you take that rock and put it up on top of the wall? And that soldier standing there said, sir, I am a corporal. And Israel Putman said, oh, I beg your pardon, sir. So the general dismounted his horse and threw the rock up himself. This is low concern. He's like, hey, we're not going to be talking about status. We're going to just simply do what needs to be done regardless of my status or regardless of my standing. And then the sixth understanding is this of no concern. Having no concern to clarify, attain, maintain, or safeguard your ego. You're just not concerned or worried about it at all. 1947, Lewis Brown wrote a long and detailed recommendation for how to handle the post-construction era in Germany. That proposal was then turned into a proposal for Congress April 3rd, 1948. The Congress passed the Economic Cooperation Act that's also more commonly known as the Marshall Plan. 
So the Marshall Plan was something that Lewis Brown wrote that they thought was more likely to be approved by Congress if it was done in Marshall, the Secretary of State's name, and so it went through that way. And Harry Truman, in response to all of that, said, it's amazing how much you can accomplish if no one cares who gets the credit. And so if Brown was on board with this and said, I don't care if my name's on it, as long as what's good gets done, then you might understand that to be humility. So we have all these different kind of nuances and variations of understanding humility. And I want to ask the question, which of these can fit with Jesus? So we're going to do the Jesus test. The Jesus test means either this is something consistent with who Jesus is, or it's consistent with something that he teaches. Ask the question, why are we going to use Jesus as our model here? Jesus himself says, Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So if Jesus is our model for humility, as we put these different definitions or concepts beside Jesus, we're going to see if they fit with him or if they don't. So let's look first at underestimation. Jesus said in John 8, 58 through 59, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself went out of the temple. Do you see Jesus in his ministry a lot of times just moping around and being like, hey, I'm just not really a very cool guy. Hey, I'm just not very important. Hey, I'm just this normal everyday guy. Jesus is very, very confident explaining who he is. In this case, he says, I am, which means he's claiming to be God, and they want to throw stones at him because he's making a really high status claim. I think that, in fact, I didn't find any, but people can come back and see if you find any. I didn't find any examples where Jesus is like, hey, no, no, you're saying nice things about me, but I'm really just, this is me. So I think we can disregard underestimation in the Jesus test. What about non-overestimation? Hmm. This one is a little more difficult to do with the first part of the Jesus test because it's really hard to overestimate when you're God, isn't it? Like you can say anything about yourself and like, okay, objective reality, that's true. You know, I can walk on water. Oh yeah, actually you can. So it's impossible for him to overestimate. That's why you have to have the second question, but what about his teachings? And it does seem Jesus is warning or correcting people who overestimate their importance or their status. People were bringing their little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and he said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. You cannot say, I'm so important, I don't have time for children. You cannot say God views children so lowly that he's not going to make time for them. You cannot overestimate your own worth and value. So we recognize this is a redeemable definition. As Christians, we need to make sure we are not overestimating. We need to be under that estimation of ourselves. What about an on-target estimation? Again, this would be when the objective reality aligns with what you say. We already said Jesus made lofty claims about himself. Can we as Christians ever make lofty claims about ourselves? And I think of Galatians 2.12 here says, It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. That's actually a pretty lofty claim. And as long as it is true to the objective reality, Scripture allows us to say lofty things like, Christ lives in me. Realize when you're saying that, you're saying the God who created the world resides within me. I'm going to call that a lofty claim. And that's permissible as long as what? It's on target. As long as it's true, you can say these sorts of things. 
but it needs to be true based on, number one, the objective reality. Number two, you're not saying it in any way to boast about yourself. And number three, you're aware of the source of the claim. Because when you're making that claim, you're really making a claim about Christ and not yourself. So when it comes to on-target estimation, you know, if you're in a conversation and someone says, hey, I just got a job promotion. And you say, oh yeah, really? Well, Christ lives in me, right? And you're trying to one-up them. That would be a case where, where even though it's on target, something's off and missing. That's why we need these extra elements of it. Humility is a balance of a cognitive thing. It is right thinking. It is an emotive thing. It is the right feeling and motivation. And it's also the right action. So if we're looking at a thing and we're saying, is this on target? Even if you're saying something that is true, but you're saying it in order to boost yourself. Or, or, or you're saying it because uh, you actually don't want to help them say, well, I really would help you, but I got Christ living in me, so I can't help you. Right? That might be cognitively a right sort of a statement, but the action doesn't match what God is calling us to do. So we need right thinking. We need right motivation. We need right action. And I think in the middle of all of that, we can have several on-target statements that we can make about ourselves. What about limitations owning? Um, I think that this also is, is helpful. It is useful. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We need to be very, very aware about our limitations. If we are able to say something that you are able to do by giftedness of the Spirit, and you can say, hey, I'm really good at this. I think humility also demands you say, but there are some things I'm just not good at all, that I am limited based on what God equips and enables me to do. Now, I want to put low concern and no concern together because they are statements of nuance. And I think this is the category where you most frequently see Jesus operating in terms of humility. That, that, that Jesus is not saying, I'm trying to get on target. I'm trying to, he, he, he's actually not even focusing on those sorts of things at all. Jesus will frequently cross boundaries that people think he shouldn't cross. He, he talks in John 4 to the Samaritan woman, to the divorced Samaritan woman. And, and why is he doing that? There's a personal risk to him, but he's not even thinking about that. He's thinking about her and her context and her needs. With the children, when they're coming to him, he's thinking about them and their situations and their context. When in, in Mark 10, when everybody's crying out, when the, the Bartimaeus, the blind man's crying out and everybody's telling him to be quiet. And Jesus says, come to me because he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about him. Of course, the cross becomes the greatest example of this. Think about Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, he threw himself to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cut pass from me, me, yet not what I want, but what you want. See that low concern for self? that no concern for himself, that he wants to do what God wants him to do. Now, I want to just clarify a couple of things about this, either low concern or no concern uh, perspective, because I think it requires a proper self-assessment. Some people embrace the no concern or low concern thing because they just think they're not even worth anybody thinking about them. You know, they wish they could just kind of just invisibly disappear into nothing and no one would even see them because they don't think that it's worth you know, it's not, I'm not even worth being seen. I'm not even worth being talked about. And they do it not out of their value, but they do it out of their lack of sense of worth. Look at what scriptures say about worth. Because I think as Christians, we need to, on the one hand, be able to say that we are far more valuable and far more worthy than we can even imagine. So Psalm 833, uh, when I look at the heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have established. Verse 4 says, beings that you are mindful of them and mortals that you care for them. So we get the sense right now in the text that what we're going to say is humans are worthless and they're nothing. What the psalmist is saying is this is how I feel. This is what it feels like should be the way the world operates, that that, that we shouldn't even be regarded or considered. And then notice the very next word in verse five, yet. So I feel like we're worthless. I feel like we're not valuable yet. You have made them, that being humans, a little lower than God and crown them with glory and honor. We are worth far more. We are far more valuable sometimes than we can even imagine. And verse 6 then says, Because of this you have given them dominion over the works of your hands, and have put all things under their feet. It's pretty amazing that God would do that for humans. He lifts us up. He honors us. He values us. But on the other hand, Proper self-assessment means we also need to remember that we are far less important than we sometimes think. Psalm 103, 13 and 14, as the father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we are made. He remembers that we are dust. That's not meant to say, look at you are dust. Wow. We need to remember these two things. Number one, we are far more valuable than we think, but we're also just simply dust. And God remembers that. And we need to remember both those perspectives. It's a tension that we live with as Christians. And so if I take all of these definitions and all of these understandings, I think the definition that I most resonate is something that Michael Austin says. He says that humility requires proper self-assessment, and a proper self-lowering other-centeredness. And to his definition, I'm going to add a few words, which is proper self-assessment and an active self-lowering. I I add the word active because sometimes I think we think humility is just cognitive, like how I think about myself and my mental self-reflection and what I think when I look in the mirror, which is this theme that we're talking about here. But proper humility, as you look at Jesus, you don't get very many windows in kind of his psychological status and how he's thinking about himself. How do we know Jesus is humble? Because of what he did. Humility is seen in actions, in the ways that we serve others. But it's a self-lowering through God-othered, God-willed, other-centeredness. And I added God-willed here because when you are concerned for what God's concerned about, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be other-centered. But the other-centered is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is, God, I want to honor you. How do I honor you? And throughout Scripture, the way God's going to say, the way you're going to honor me is by doing what? Being other-centered. Serving other people. Being humble to them. And so that becomes the ultimate motivation. So I want to look at a passage that probably from the beginning you're going to say is a strange place to go to illustrate the humility of Jesus. This is going to be Matthew chapter 21. probably remember this text. Jesus enters into the temple And there he drives out those who are buying and selling. And Matthew 21 verse 13 says, He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus' primary concern is here with what? Is what God wants. What God longs for. What God would like to see happen. And what Jesus says is that God wants his house to be a house of prayer. And if we go back to Isaiah 56, where this is initially the context The concern is that foreigners from all places might come into God's house. So it's to be a house of prayer for 
all nations. So that's ultimately Jesus begins with God. What is it that you want? And God says, I want my temple to be a house of prayer, a place for all people in all nations. So what is it that a humble person does in response to that? Jesus goes and he, because of his passion for God's will, he's now focused on others. He's saying the foreigners need to have a place in the temple. That the temple is not just for elite people or for special people. It's for all. And so Jesus self-lowers. He humbles himself and he takes a risk. Do you think it's possible Jesus could have said, hey, Peter, I got a job for you today. Right? And so if you're going to get in trouble, you're going to get someone else in trouble. But Jesus himself goes and he does this. The very next thing that Matthew tells us happens in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. Who benefited from what Jesus did? The blind and the lame. Because that's what it means to be humble. It means that the blind who cannot see for themselves, the the lame who cannot walk for themselves, you become their eyes, you become their feet, and you have a higher self-regard for them and for what they need. And even if that's a risk to you or even if that's a burden to you, you stand up for those. It's like Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 30, 31, where it says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Stand up for the poor and the destitute. That's exactly what a humble person does is they act not out of their own best interest, but out of the interests of others. But notice now what happens with the chief priests. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did, and they heard children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what they're saying? What they are saying is, Jesus, you're you're allowing something really, really high and complimentary to be said to you, and you should not allow it. They're calling you the son of David. Now, Jesus should deny this if what? If he's not the son of David. But as long as he is the son of David, as a humble servant of God, he needs to take ownership for this is who I am. Because this is who God has called me to be, and this is who God has created me to be. So he does not take away this, this title. He accepts it because it honors God to talk about his own honor. And my prayer is as we continue through this series that we're going to learn to be that kind of people. A kind of a people who practice active self-lowering through God-willed othered centeredness. That's tough in a world where everything we hear in the news and advertisements is about what do you want? What do you need? And I think that the gospel calls us to say, what does he want and what do they need? So this week, as you go through the week, I want you to just be asking yourself the question, how often am I acting out of an other-centered focus? I think the more we begin to do that, the more we begin to live into the kind of humility that God calls us into. So a word of blessing as we begin the process of, of looking at heading back into that world that I think needs a light what it means to be humble. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. And we go into the world with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. As we sing that song, um, I'll be back in the back. Um, others will be back there as well. If you want somebody to pray with you, if you want to talk about the journey of humility, and the journey of humility begins with one very crucial first step, which is you need to die to yourself. That's why no regard, low regard is the Christian model. 
because it begins by saying, I died to my old way of living. And if you want to consider that decision this morning, just come and find us in the back while we stand and sing this next song together.